it up. How many of you ever been to Pump It Up? It's actually for kids, but it's big enough for adults. Trust me. And, and you know what's funny is when I get a cut, that kind of hurts. But when you get a burn on your arm from one of those things, oh my goodness. <laughs> it's like a thousand little stinging needles just going in you all at once. And so uh, if I kind of flinch every now and then, it's because my shirt is rubbing against my burn mark. But I do want to let you know, I raced my son yesterday in the obstacle course, and I won. <laughs> Never mind the fact I had to grab him off the ladder and throw him down <laughs> onto the... <laughs> this morning, uh, we're going to go out of order. We're not going to Matthew 6, 7, or 8, anywhere in there. We're actually going to the Easter story in Matthew. And uh, we're starting a series called Daybreak. And it's going to be three messages that really build toward the, both the Lent season and the Easter season and kind of talk about the betrayal and the rejection and, of course, the rising of Jesus Christ and how those impact us today. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you brought them to Matthew chapter 26 chapter 26, going almost all the way to the end, and uh, we're going to talk about a, a well-known story and uh, a well-known protagonist and a well-known antagonist, Jesus and Judas. So let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, God. Now, as we turn our attention toward the Word of God, I pray you'd open our hearts and open our minds to what you would have to say to us, Lord Jesus. And we just maybe come away with just one thing this morning. Uh, that we can uh, really digest this week in our walk and our growth with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning in verse 8, Matthew 26, it's a story of when Jesus is uh, at the home of his friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and they're having dinner. And of course, after uh, dinner, Mary does a very prophetic event where she anoints uh, Jesus with oil uh, in a fashion that would be for someone's burial. And of course, she is prophesying that his death is at hand and, and close and coming. And so as she's pouring this very expensive perfume on, this ointment, beginning in verse 8, it says, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked, this perfume could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Come on, Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? Now notice, the, the disciples aren't going after Jesus for allowing it to happen. They're pulling the woman aside. And, you know, why are you doing this? This is wasteful, young lady. And so Jesus comes, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you always have with you. And the systems of poverty in this world will always be there until this world ends. But when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. That's good news, huh? Verse 13, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here's the real crux of it. Verse 14, then one of the twelve... One of the 12 means close, inner disciple. Then one of the guys who's been walking and talking with Jesus in a very close, intimate way 
the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? They knew very well that Jesus had a price on his head. He had a mark on his head. He was a marked man, and Judas knew he could stand to gain profit if they hand over this kind of one of Judea's top 10 most wanted men, which was Jesus at the time. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas looked for an opportunity to hand him over. Remember, there's 11 other disciples there who don't want this to happen, and so Judas has got to be crafty in his betrayal. He can't just say he's there. They're moving around. They're, they're, they're taking precautions. So Judas has to find just the right time when Jesus is at his most vulnerable. If you look on your sheet this morning, I know there's a lot there. I'm going to go through it very quickly. But first, before we go into how to, how to tackle this issue, this, this sense of rising above a betrayal, because most of us, by the time you've reached an adult, you've gone through something that's a betrayal. And this morning, we want to break it down just very quickly, very easy. Number one, betrayal is a breach of trust. Has to come down to that. That's why Matthew says that Judas was one of the 12. It wasn't just that Judas was a bad hire. It wasn't just that he was incompetent. We all have people who fail us without betraying us. You know, well, he wasn't very good at that anyway. She wasn't very good at that. You know, it's almost like the expectation wasn't there in the first place. But then there are people whom you give your heart to, who you give your trust to, who you become vulnerable with. You take that risk and you know they can hurt you. And they do. It's a breach of trust. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say this to me. I don't trust anybody. Nobody's trustworthy. Nobody's dependable. Everybody in the end you know, messes over with you. So I just don't trust anybody. Nobody's trustable. That's the way I live my life. So often people do that. Why? As a protection mechanism to ever getting betrayed again. They get betrayed once, hurts real bad, and so they just put up the walls of ever getting hurt again. Most often, I find this in remarriages. That sometimes not all of those walls of distrust have been dealt with, and now the new spouse has the wonderful task of trying to penetrate and deal with that. So first of all, looking at betrayal, it's a breach of trust. Second of all, Betrayal can often blur good and evil. It gets twisted somewhere in our minds. Something, uh, uh, you know, some, you actually begin to see something that most people would call evil as good. All of a sudden, you start saying to yourself, this is what I have to do. I've got it. You can just almost hear it with Judas. Man, look at this guy. You know, he embarrasses me in front of all the other disciples. I start talking about selling this for money to give to the poor, and he rebukes me. He makes me look like a fool. I'm sick of Jesus. I'm sick of him dissing on me. I'm going to go, and I'm going to hit him where it hurts. I know who wants him. He's a wanted man. And hey, I might be able to get some money out of this. He's not thinking. This is a man 
let me in. This is a man who prayed all night for me to become one of his disciples. This is a man who miraculously fed 4,000 people with a couple of loaves and some fish. This is a man who I saw heal the sick. This is a man who I saw raise the dead. That, all that got blurred. And all of a sudden, in that kind of twisting of perspective, Judas begins to say, you know what? He's not the man I thought, I was, thought he was. And Judas sets aside good and leads Jesus into a trap. He could have simply said, Jesus, I'm done with you. Be, care, be aware of me. Be careful of me because I'm going over to the Jewish leaders. If I see you, I'm going to point you out, tell them where to get. He could have said that, but he didn't. He set Jesus up, set him into a trap. Number three, betrayal happens by those close to us. Uh, Julius Caesar, he was assassinated by his close friends with a knife and a dagger. But look what Judas does. It's not here in the text, but Judas comes up and he betrays Jesus with a kiss, a greeting of close friends. And all of a sudden, after Judas kisses Jesus, the soldiers swarm in around and they know exactly the man who they're to carry off. Number four, betrayal always costs you more than what you gain. For 30 pieces of silver, which was the life price purchase of a servant in Judea, Jesus was sold to his death. But the remorse and indignation that Judas felt, eventually he went out and hung himself. It always costs more than we gain. For 30 minutes of sexual pleasure, a marriage covenant can be shattered. For 30 seconds of cussing out a coworker, years of earned trust can be drained. That's the problem with attempting to do things out of God's way that often costs far more in the end than what we gain with devastating long-term consequences. Number five, in the end, at the end of it, the anatomy of betrayal is this. Judas loved himself more than Jesus. The whole point of the gospel, the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross is not that he just simply loves to commit suicide and kill himself, but that he loved us more than himself. His betrayal is the exact opposite. You see a Judas loving Judas more than Jesus. So what do we do with this? It's not always easy. But first, asking for help. This one, getting betrayed like this in this manner, is something that we can't do on our own. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That we're to be here for each other. In the good times and the bad, when we're fighting and when we're loving. Some people, when they go through a betrayal, they literally live at someone else's house. You know, husband walks out or, you know, business partner just completely, you know, bankrupts the company. I mean, they they can't even live in their house anymore. They got to go and stay at someone else's house. That's not always bad. But for many of us, and for me in particular, we close up real tight. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want you talking about it. I don't want anyone else thinking about it. I don't want people to perceive me as a, a failure. 
I'll start saying things like, well, maybe it was my fault. Maybe I was just gullible. I've been had. I've been dissed. I'm a sucker. I should have seen this coming. I'm a man. I'm a private person. And I just close up. Oh, yeah, I've been betrayed. Last thing I want to do is admit it. Last thing I want to do is deal with it. Worst thing I can do. Best thing is to ask somebody for help. First, to ask God for help, and we'll get to that in a moment. But very much to ask a friend or someone to say, can you walk on the journey of brokenness with me for a little while? I need it. I need it. Otherwise, I may go out and do something stupid. Amen? Number two, don't seek revenge. Don't return betrayal with a betrayal. A betrayer already faces devastating long-term consequences, and that is the last thing that you need right now. You're already hurting, already going through it, already, you know, trying to figure things out. And the fact of the matter is, by going out and hurting some more, you're only adding to the problem. I remember when I was really, really hurt and betrayed a lifetime ago by a woman I was in love with, and I was mad, and, 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 and she wanted to be friends and all this stuff, and I'm thinking, man, I just want to give you a piece of my mind, and I'm talking over one of these days with one of my friends, and I'm just getting mad, and I'm getting angry. I'm going to do this to her. I'm going to do this to her. You see, man, you just, just wait until she gets a piece of my mind, and then he just kind of looked at me, and he said, man, she really taught you how to hurt, didn't she? It hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Do I want to become the very thing that's killing me right now? She really taught me how to hurt. No. No, the last thing you need when you've been betrayed is to become like your betrayer. Number three. Give yourself time to heal. It bothers me when people come in uh, for my office for, for a pastoral chat and they'll say, well, my friend said that I should just get over this, that this happens all the time, it happens to everybody, that I'm no different, I'm crying like a baby and I should just get over it. Well, the fact is, yeah, it does happen all the time. But this time, it happened to you. That's the difference. It's not just something that happens in the world. This happened in your world. And you have to give yourself time to heal. You'll heal a little, then it might come back. You'll heal a little, and then it might come back. You'll work some things out with God, and then it seems like you're back to square one. It takes time. How much? Anywhere between 18 months to five years would be what I've seen in my, both in my own life experience and from talking to others and, and from engaging this subject. It can take five years before you land on your feet again. It can take a year and a half. You can't rush it. You just let it, he, you just let God heal in his time and his process. Number four, here's one thing that really helps me when I'm really mad or I'm really, I just can't seem to do it. My, my reaction is like a lot of you. I want to fix myself on my own. Uh, I love God. Sometimes I, I just don't want to bother God. I don't want to have to need God, you know? And so I just, you know, I can take care of this. I'm a man. I'm intelligent. Come on, I can do this. And yet there's a saying and a statement that has really helped me recently and, 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 I, and over the years where I just kind of look and I say, God, I'm doing all I can. Will you do what I can't? 
I do all I can. God does what I can't. Some days I accept it. Some days I'm over it. And then some days it just hits me like a ton of bricks all over again. Sure, the passage of time may take the sting out, but the thoughts can linger on over the span of my timeline. And so here's my prayer in those situations. God, I'm doing all I can. I ask you to do what I can. Because God, I can't seem to move on like I know I should. God, I can't seem to forgive like I know I need to do. God, I can't seem to heal and I really want to be healed. I can't seem to kick this bad habit that I've now started to cope with this. And so Holy Spirit, as a Christian, I know you're in there. And I pray you would do in me when I can. Because what I can seems to be this much. What you can. Don't let the trash of bitterness pile up on me and slash apart the beauty of your restoration of my soul. God, where I can't, you can. Help me to let go of the bitterness and the anger that is controlling me. Number five, say also, I am not a victim. I am not stuck in the mud. God is still growing me. I am still in process. I am not hurt. God is healing me. I am not broken. God is causing me to become whole. When you say, I am this. And then you don't say that there's movement beyond it. It's very quickly you can say, I am an angry person. I am stuck in the mud. I have a temper I can't deal with. I have an addiction, and that's just who I am, and that's the way I'm going to be the rest of my life. What you're really saying is how big you think God is and how strong he's able to move in our lives. I am not broken. God is making me whole. I am not hurt forever. God is bringing healing into my life. I am not stuck in betrayal. God is bringing about a new beginning as I pray. I am not stuck in anger. God is cultivating forgiveness in my heart. I'm regularly taking out the trash for my own benefit so that I can realize the purpose that God has for my life. And then finally, um, number six, learn from it. Why do I put that in there? Because I've seen over and over again people get betrayed and then don't learn from that betrayal. They retrust too soon. They invite someone back in too soon. They give that trust again too soon. I see parents do this with their kids all the time. Kids will break trust. And then and parents, we want to believe the best in our kids. I understand that. But we've got to be objective. They're our kids, but they're also human beings with the same brokenness we all have. Look, I know Judas gets a bad rap, but the fact of the matter is what was in Judas is in all of us. We've all got a sense of ourselves before God or before anybody else. We've all got, you know, it's like the song from Willie Nelson. I am always on my mind, right? close what is it you are always no that's wrong that's not theologically accurate i am always on my mind first you might come in second hopefully god comes in second every now and then he's a distant third 
I like that statement that my mom always used to say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Trust should not be so easily given when you've been betrayed. Learn from it. What were the circumstances and things that may have led up to that? And don't ever walk away and say, oh, it's all my fault. There's always a lot more to a situation than simply you and your input. And then finally, allow God to use it for good. I found this quote. I've been reading it over and over as, as, as I was trying to craft this message. It's even in your bulletin, I think, at the very end. Judas's money-making treachery. Judas's money-making treachery, when combined with Jesus' obedient submission to God, transformed the world. God can cause even the most hideous betrayal to turn out for good. Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus remains obedient to God. And the world gets changed. Thank God Jesus handed that betrayal. Can you imagine? Not only is Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world, he'd just been betrayed by his closest friends. Don't think that his friends were so easily dismissed. Jesus loved them. He ate with them. He played with them. He recreated with them. They weren't ministering all the time, every day. They had times that we could only dream of. When they played with Jesus, they sang with him. They cooked with him. They fished with him. He loved them. And they left him. Not only does he have to die a death he doesn't deserve, he has to do it in the midst of being betrayed by everyone he loved. It was hard for Jesus to go to the cross, not for just the physical pain, but the sense of feeling abandoned and rejected by his friends. If you look at what Jesus said on the cross, you'll see it. It comes out. That was the pain he was dealing with more. I want to end with a story. A story about a missionary named Don Richardson. He had spent several frustrating years in New Guinea trying to bring the gospel of Jesus to a nearly Stone Age tribe. But the Christian values of love and forgiveness had no appeal for the Sawi, for they held up deceit as the highest virtue. In fact, when Richardson told them of the story of Jesus, only one incident sparked their interest. You know what it was? Judas. Judas to the Sawi was a genuine hero. He had shrewdly penetrated the trusted inner circle of Jesus before betraying him to his enemies. They wanted to hear more about Judas. They wanted to hear the teachings of Judas. Finally, after watching the 14th bloody battle fought outside his home, Richardson asked himself, how could we we ever break through to such a violent people. Richardson decided to leave, but just before he left, the Sawi and their deadly enemies, the Hanein, signed, staged an elaborate ceremony in front of his home. Everyone is, was silent except the Sawi's chief wife. Her screams and moans could be heard miles away as the chief went over and took the baby she had in her arms. The chief walked over to his enemy, the chief of the Hanaim, and gave him the child to be renamed and raised as one of their own. 
by mutual agreement, as long as this peace child lived, no wars would ever be fought between the tribes. Something clicked in Don Richardson's mind as he watched what was happening. At last, he had found an analogy and a parallel built into the story of the Sowie's culture that he could convey the message of a loving and forgiving God. He gathered everybody around him, and he said, God sent his own son to live among enemies that through his death and through his life, he would make peace with mankind. Do you have his peace this morning? Bow your heads with me. I want to pray for all of you who are either going through a betrayal or have been betrayed, or years later, you know it's still there. Heavenly Father, right now, I lift up our congregation. And Jesus, I ask you that what we cannot do, you would. That we would begin to say to ourselves, God, I'll do what I can do. Steps to forgiveness, steps to healing, spending time with friends. But Jesus, I pray you would do what I can't. God, I pray that you would heal and cover me. There is healing power in Jesus' name. Over 15 years of ministry, I've seen it with my own eyes. The common testimony of those who go to God and handle betrayal like Jesus did with forgiveness and patient healing. They're not controlled by bitterness. They're not controlled by anger. And God brings about a good So, Lord, I lift up our congregation. God, now I ask that you would bless them. I ask that you would keep them. I ask that your face would shine upon them, that you would fill them with your spirit, cover them with your peace. In Jesus' name.